Good morning. It's good to be with you, and and I was uh, glad uh, Pastor Chris agreed to uh, fit in that new song, Jesus, I Thy Cross Have Taken. I hope you enjoyed that. It's rich if you haven't ever heard it, and, uh, and I thought it was fitting. As we come to this passage, as that's exactly what Jesus calls us to, and I think that song really in a meditative form, brings that out and presses it deep within our hearts. And that's especially a message that we need to hear because the world in which we live in today uh, values nothing about what we just sang. In fact, the values of the world, the things that the world promotes, even the things that the world demands, if you will, is individual self-expression. Don't deny yourself, fulfill yourself. Pursue everything you hope and dream and long for. Perhaps the chief virtue in the modern age in which we live. And this is not unique in the sense of human hearts have been sick, uh, sinful, selfish, and, and wicked uh, since Genesis chapter 3. However, I would say in our culture, in our day, in this age in which we live, <clears throat> there is a renewed uh, commitment to the individual. Whereas in previous generations, there you could see uh, there was a value, if you will, in reserve, in constraint. But today, our present world views those things as oppressive and suppressive. Who you are is not defined by God. Not even nature has any say on who you are, but you are defined by what you feel in your innermost being. To go against your desires is not only a, a failure, as the world might say, to be true to yourself. You've heard that phrase, right? Be true to yourself. That's the, maybe the biggest sin in our society, not being true to yourself. But not only is going against your desires a failure to be who you really are, but it is an indictment upon society's structures and systems which are now being viewed as oppressive environments which limit you from your full potential. This is why, if you just are paying any attention, I know you are, we're witnessing a, a complete uh, attempt at redefining or even dismantling of the family, biology, authority structures. These so-called traditional structures are viewed as hindrances, if you will, of the primary goal of life, namely the freedom of every individual to pursue what they believe will make them happy. Now, we can look and see this mindset plaguing our world, but we would be remiss to think that we would be immune from this. Church is on is infected by this way of thinking as well. There's a notion, and sometimes we may even find ourselves thinking or even saying things that say that we, the ultimate determination of what we believe God's will is for our life is what makes us most happy. Many have come to believe that God wouldn't want us to feel anything other than happiness, Right? God wouldn't want us to experience anything or to have it any other way. And so when relationships get hard, when a marriage becomes difficult, when our children are a burden or a job just doesn't fulfill us, what have we been programmed to believe? 
I don't deserve this, right? I don't deserve this. I deserve better, and God wants better for me. God would want me to do and pursue what would make me most happy. And yet what we find in our text this morning is something utterly shocking to the modern age, right? All our modern sensibilities. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come follow me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Let that sink in. You want to follow Jesus. You want to be a part of Jesus. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Jesus' message to the world, and this is a message our world needs to hear, our generation needs to hear. If you want to be a Christian, it is the end of you. It is the end of you. It's not about your own self-expression. It's not about you insisting on your rights. It's not about finding fulfillment in your dreams, nor accepting who you are. All those things are damning lies. Now, Jesus says it's about renouncing yourself. That's what he's saying here. And you might say, well, I picked the wrong Sunday to come to church. I thought it was Thanksgiving week. <laughs> I want you to know that even in this message, there's great hope. Jesus says that in denying yourself, you will find your life. You will find it. You will find what you are looking for. And this is a total 180 from everything the world tells us, right? Every song that we sing, not here in church, but outside of church, every, every book that we read, every show that we watch, nearly every person that we talk to, what is the overriding message? What is the current that is flowing and carrying the world along? It is live for yourself. Don't do anything that would be hard on you. Anything that would cause you to feel uncomfortable. Anything to deny who you are. And anybody who would tell you otherwise is dangerous. That's the world's message to you. And for us who've come to Christ, you know what Jesus says? I'm going to put that way of thinking to death in you. Every time it, it, it seeks to creep in, I'm going to crush it. <laughs> I'm not going to let you live in that little fantasy world. I am going to put to death everything that is earthly in you. Following Christ is difficult, isn't it? Any of us who've been a Christian for any amount of time, and even if, if it's, you've only been a Christian for a few weeks or even months, you know that following Christ actually is a daily dying to self, isn't it? It's a daily dying to self. And how does that dying to self look like? It looks like through confession and repentance. It's by exercising faith whereby we are raised to new life by the Holy Spirit and, and we renew and receive his promises anew. Namely, his forgiveness, life, joy, peace, and eternal salvation. That's why we gather every Lord's Day. We, it says if we renew our commitment, we renew our faith, we're denying ourselves, and we're, we're being fed the breath of life from our Savior. And so this morning, what I want us to learn from this text is what it means to live 
what I'm calling the cross-centered life. I actually borrowed this from C.J. Mahaney's great little book, The Cross-Centered Life. It's in the library. I encourage you to get it. But I have written my own sermon. It's not preaching the book, so don't worry about that. Okay, I just stole the title, all right? But I want us to think about what does it look like for my life to be shaped by the cross? Because that's what Jesus says. You want to follow me? Your life must be shaped by the cross. What does that mean? And I want us to see that 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 means viewing particularly our sufferings through the lens of the cross and accepting them as God's perfectly suited means for conforming us into the image of his son. I want you to see that all our sufferings are God's perfect instruments, individual crosses that he, he lays upon you to conform you to the image of his son so that just as you share in his sufferings, you may share in his glory and his joy. To live the cross in our life, we're going to have to adjust how we think. In fact, that's what Jesus is going to tell Peter. (laughs) You need to change how you think because you're thinking like a man. I want you to think like God thinks. And so as we kind of shift. What, it, what does it look like to live the Christ in our life? Well, we must set our mind on the cross of Christ, the way of Christ, and the glory of Christ. Let's begin looking at the cross of Christ here in our text. And our, our passage really is a continuation from where we were last week, where, where you, if you remember, it was this great crescendo where, where Peter makes this bold profession of faith that Jesus, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And, 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 and Jesus turns to him and says, uh, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven and pronounced this great blessing upon him and reveals his plan for his life. You know, this is what we all want. God, tell me your plan for my life. And, and Jesus tells Peter, you're going to be this little pebble in this foundation of this great building and edifice that I'm going to establish and not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. And Peter's probably thinking, man, I am top dog around here, Right? I really am on top of my game. I, I, yeah, not only do I walk on water, but Jesus knows I'm the guy he's going to build this thing on, right? But Jesus says something very strange that we didn't touch on last week, but really leads us into our passage this week. Verse 20, then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? That's the right answer, right, Jesus? Yeah. Why don't you want us to tell anybody? It's kind of weird. When we come to verse 21, we we begin to get a glimpse of why Jesus tells them, you you don't need to be telling people who I am quite yet. Because here in verse 21, Jesus is going to tell them that I am going to Jerusalem. And what awaits me is not glory and exaltation but suffering and death. Many, Jesus knows, will get the wrong idea. In fact, the disciples, they they know who Jesus is. They just don't understand what he's going to do. They've got the right confession, but they don't know how his kingly rule is going to come about. And so Jesus is like, hold your horses. (laughs) You're not ready to tell people 
about my kingdom quite yet. Notice Jesus tells them in verse 21, he must, do you see that, that language? He must go to Jerusalem. There's not only a, a sense of single-mindedness and determination in Jesus, that there's a, a focus, a, a determination to, to accomplish what must come about, but there is also this sense of divine necessity. In the Gospel of John, you'll hear Jesus often say, my hour has not yet come, as if he is on this divine timeline. Well, we get a glimpse of that here when he says, the Son of Man, or, or, or Jesus, must go to Jerusalem. There is no other way. And what we see here is that Jesus is fully submitted to the divine will of the Father. He understands that he has, as the Messiah, he is a suffering Messiah, just as Isaiah had prophesied. And he knows that he is going to come as as the prophets have foretold, and he is going to suffer on behalf of his people. Yes, Jesus is coming to win a victory. But what the disciples do not yet understand, and certainly the crowds would not understand, is that this victory isn't primarily going to come in overthrowing Rome. No, he's going to bring victory over Satan's sin and death. He has come to save his people from their sins. And he's going to do so by laying down his life. And he's going to be a guilt offering for them. He's the suffering servant who will be cut off, Isaiah says, for the transgressions of his people. Jesus knows that the journey that he's on is leading to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, there's a cross awaiting him. And so he begins to prepare his disciples for the upcoming suffering and death that he is going to incur. And what he is going to teach us here, and he's teaching the disciples that the enthronement is coming by way of the cross. His exaltation, the crown, if you will, his rule and his reign, it is going to come about in a way that you do not expect. So having kind of explained this, showed the disciples this, Peter still living on the high of, of the previous encounter that he had. And so Peter decides to talk to the guys and, and oh, like, man, what's Jesus talking about? We really appreciate that he's willing to die for us, but we're not going to let this happen. I'll take care of it, guys. And so he goes, and he says, hey, Jesus, come here, come here. We, we appreciate you very much, but that's not happening on our watch, okay? Uh, we aren't going to let you die when we get to Jerusalem. No, you are going to be enthroned, you are going to set foot, and you are going to fulfill everything that you are to be. You are the son of David, you're going to sit upon his throne, you're going to put your enemies under your feet. And as Matthew records for us, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Maybe Peter looked over at the guys and kind of gave a smirk like, got this covered. And what we don't expect here is that Jesus gives Peter some of the most scathing words of rebuke that we see anywhere in the Scripture. In fact, I don't know if there is any more scathing words that he could say. And it may be as if Peter, uh, without even recognizing, caught totally on guard, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You 
are a hindrance to me. You're a stumbling block. You've set your mind not on the things of God, but the things of man. And Peter's little ego whoosh, deflates like a little balloon. I mean, what, what's the big deal here? Why is Jesus so adamant and even brings such harsh rebuke to Peter, who, who's just merely trying to say, hey, you don't have to suffer and die. What we see here is the rock upon which Jesus says he's going to build the church has now become a stumbling stone. There is a play on words here. Yeah, you're a rock. You're the rock that I stumped my toe on. He's doing what Satan did all the way back in the temptation in the wilderness. You know, when Jesus was, was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and one of the, uh, the temptations was he brought him to the, the pinnacle of the temple and, and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, he says, actually, I will give you all these things if you just bow down to me. And what was Satan getting at? There is another way of your enthronement. There's an easier way, and I've got the way. And that's what Peter's doing. Peter is saying, yeah, there's, there's, there's another way. We're not doing that plan. We're doing the victorious plan, our plan. And so Jesus tells him, no, 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 no. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And can't you see yourself in Peter? I mean, how, how often that we, we would be in saying the same thing. No, 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 no. Suffering death, it's not on, on God's plan for my life, for anybody's life. He would not want that for his church. He would not want that for his people. He certainly wouldn't want that for his Messiah. And like Peter and the disciples, we too are often shocked by suffering. Because we have no category for it. We don't know what to do with it. We could never believe that suffering would be part of God's will for our lives. And so as we come to this text, and why this is brought to our attention in the gospel, is that we have to remind ourselves of the cross of Christ. We have to look back. And in that cross, guess what we see? We see in Christ's greatest moment of suffering, his greatest victory. His greatest moment of agony, what seems to be his greatest moment of defeat, is actually his victory. And, and we now know as we come back on this side of the cross, if Jesus had not died, we would not have had atonement made for our sins. We would still be dead in our sins. If Jesus had not raised, which he does make mention of, and be raised on the third day, if he had not been raised, we would not be vindicated. We would not be justified. We would not be declared righteous. What Christ is doing in the cross and ultimately the resurrection is bringing the redemption of the world. And if Jesus had gone Peter's path, it would have been the end of Peter and all of us. In the cross of Christ, we're shown, get this, God's mysterious plan of redemption. God's ways, which had been shadows and hints in the Old Testament, 
are actually come to their, their fullness and their pinnacle in the cross. We see God's ways of working in the world by which he brings life through death. He brings exaltation through humility. And we see that the crown of glory comes by way of the cross. And we have to remember that. We have to look back and remember the cross and God's purposes on display, which has brought about the reconciliation of all things. And where Jesus has defeated every enemy. And so for this reason, we must also set our mind on the way of Christ. And as soon as we look on the past, and it leads us to understand how we live in the present. And so what Jesus has now explained is set for the Son of Man when he arrives in Jerusalem is also what the disciples of the Son of Man can expect in the world. He says, what is about to happen to me as I arrive in Jerusalem, the cross that I'm going to bear, guess what? It is going to be the pattern for your life. That's what he's saying. As I will deny myself and take up my cross and die, so anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the way. Jesus further explains the way of Christ is demonstrated in the cross and resurrection. Look at what he says in, in verse 25. He explains it for whoever would save his life will lose it. What does it mean to save your life? Live for yourself. Pursue the world's riches. Pursue the kingdoms of this world. You, you, you want to live for those things and do everything you can to make sure you're taking care of you, you will in the end lose. That's what Pastor Jim read from Psalm 49. All in the end, man in his pomp is like the beast who perish. But whoever loses his life, now notice this qualifier, for my sake, will find it. Jesus isn't talking about some sort of suicide mission or self-loathing. He's not talking about just beating yourself up and, and self-harm. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is making very clear is that the one who will truly find life, eternal life, everlasting joy, the blessedness of the kingdom, that person is one who's willing to give up his life in Jesus' name. Certainly the whole concept of the cross, I mean, that, that's pretty dire. That brings the, the picture of death and execution. So death is really at play here. The whole picture of that is, is bound up in the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus' death was. It was a death on the cross. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to, if need be, die a death like mine. And for all these disciples who are standing there listening to him, minus Judas, that will be their death. Not a literal cross for all of them, although tradition seems to suggest that Peter did. But all of them will die for Jesus' name. And in fact, many Christians around the world, that's exactly what following Jesus leads to, right? 
encourage you, we, we've got the blessing of having Caitlin here for a little bit. And, uh, and I bet if you talk to her and her experience in the Islamic world, that's, that's precisely what's at stake. Um, just knowing a little bit about her story without saying too much, there's very little problem to hang out with Christians, to maybe show some interest in Christianity, to befriend Christians. It's a totally different thing to declare you've renounced Islam and you're going to be baptized in Jesus' name. That's almost certainly a death sentence. Everyone in the Middle East knows that you have better be willing to die if you want to become a disciple of Jesus. And the world, our way of viewing that, say, ah, oh, that's, that's so tragic. It's so worthless. Maybe even well-minded Christians would say, okay, okay. Let's try and keep this secret. Baptism, if that's what's going to kill you, let's, let's, let's find another way. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you want to bear my name, you better be willing to reap the consequences. See, when we remember Christ, we know, and we look back at the cross, guess what we know? We know that God is especially glorified in bringing life to others through the death of another. Church often said the, the seed of the church was the blood of the martyrs. In fact, where you see persecution on the, the greatest levels, actually you'll see the church thriving at the greatest amount. See, if you think purely individualistically, you want no part in that. I don't want to be the seed put in the ground. <laughs> I want to be the multiplier. And yet Jesus says, unless a seed is placed in the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. This idea of taking up a cross, though, extends beyond martyrdom. Certainly not anything less, but it extends beyond that. And Christians throughout the ages have understood that. In fact, that's what we sang, Jesus, I thy cross have taken. There's a, a sense in which we understand that the crosses that, that we bear, the trouble that comes upon us, it is far. Not everyone is going to die the death of a martyr. So what does bearing a cross entail? Well, it entails a disposition of self-denial, self-renunciation in response to the trouble which comes upon you. And you say, why would I do that? Because you're looking at your trouble through the lens of the cross and God's work in the world and particularly his work in his people. And you come to the realization that despite the trouble that may come upon me, and, and it's Myriads upon myriads of types of trouble, right? If we were just to take a, a list in the room, what is troubling your soul? What is weighing on you? We would find various answers and response. But the Christian realizes that despite that trouble, God in his wisdom and his great love for us is using it to conform us to the image of his son. That's why we go to that great passage in Romans 8. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And what are all those things? Those groanings, those sufferings, those things in our life that cause us to groan and moan and ache 
and we remind ourselves that even those things are working for our ultimate good, which is to be conformed in the image of Christ. Such trouble may be sinful inclinations. Some of you are plagued with temptations that another person doesn't have, right? Some of us are just born, and, and, and we have a, a certain propensity to certain types of sins, and, and, and many of us are struggling because we feel as if I've been walking with Christ for years, and I cannot seem to put that sin to death. It is constantly breathing heavily down my neck. Others of us incur health challenges, whether that may be from birth or later in life, and it totally dictates and overcomes our lives. Maybe there's a difficult relationship. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you are your spouse's cross. Persecution may be part of it. Crosses that we bear is any suffering that we would not choose for ourselves. And the battle of self-denial comes in here, if you're listening. This is where, okay, what does that mean to deny myself and take up the cross? Well, this is where the battle comes into play. You, that, whatever that burden is in your life, and right now I know you're thinking of it. That thing that you wish you could get rid of and all your worries would go away. Here's where the battle comes and self-denial comes in play. When the world comes to you in its various forms and fashions and whispers in your ear and says, you know what? There's another way. You know, if, if Jesus really doesn't expect you to do what he says. He knows that you, your life circumstances are unique and nobody else knows what you've done and, and so you get an exemption. Or you know what? Jesus doesn't love you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He surely isn't going to keep you and protect you. If you're waiting on him, you're, you're going to be miserable the rest of your life. And those seeds of doubt begin to take root. The worries of the world, like those thorns among the, the ground, choke out that seed. And they fall away. The world comes, Satan comes and says, guess what? If you turn your back on Jesus, you won't have to carry that burden anymore. That's how Satan loves to tempt you. In all the ways, all the sins, all the, the pressures, all the insecurities, all the burdens that are laying heavy on your soul, loves to tempt you that way to believe that when suffering comes, that God is either not able to do what he promises or that he doesn't want to do it. It's in these times that we must arm ourselves with weapons to fight back. We need, we need a weapon in the right hand and a weapon in the left hand to counter these things. And, that, and the first weapon I want you to think about here is we must counter these lies with the promises of God. And this is where we look back to the cross. And we see at the cross, guess what we learn? That suffering leads to exaltation. Now, I want you to see something. I think this is remarkable because Peter, who flounders, obviously, here, I want you to turn to Peter's epistle, the first epistle. We're only going to look briefly at two verses. But I want you to see that Peter learns the lesson, not here today, but as he continues to follow Christ. And I want you to see as he shepherds us, 
on the other side of the cross. And so that first weapon I want you to think about is you engage by you counter the lies of the evil one, the world, with the promises of Christ. And, and in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, this is what Peter says. I hear Bible pages frantically shifting, so I'll wait. All right, they're slowing down a little bit. Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Insofar, look at this language, as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you see how he, he brings these two things together? Your cross, your, your sharing in the, in the sufferings of Christ, and because you share in his sufferings, you know his outcome was resurrection, so will be yours. And he's, he's telling us, don't be caught off guard when these troubles come your way. When they absolutely sweep you off your feet, you're united to Christ, and he's already told you, whoever comes following me, you've gone down the path of the cross. But guess what? The cross leads to resurrection. And so we, we counter the lies of the evil one, and we think the thoughts of God after him that have been revealed to us in the cross. And we remember that just as Christ obeyed the will of the Father by yielding himself on the cross, he obtained resurrection and exaltation. So we must not waver in the, following the path that he has blazed before us, right? The trail that he's blazed, we follow in his footsteps because we know he has gone the path of glory. But there's a second weapon. That's in your right hand, the promises of God. You wield that sword. But in your left hand, we must also remind ourselves of the dire consequences of abandoning Christ. The right hand's the weapon of promises. The left hand's the weapon of warning. Look at what Jesus says. Let's flip back to Matthew 16. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This proverbial statement is meant to be a warning to us. And warnings are, are, are God's means of grace to keep us. We do it with our children. We've got a fireplace that we're starting to crank up, even though it's sometimes 60 degrees. But anyway, nevertheless, we're still using it. And we have to tell our children, don't stand on the black, which is the little hearth that's right there. Why? Your flesh will be singed, okay? That's the warning. That's the grace of God in your life you've been warned. Andrew is the only one who has failed to heed the warning as a child. But he will never do it again, I'll tell you that. Warnings are good for us. In the world under the influence of Satan, guess what Jesus is telling? He will offer you the world. Say there's another way. And Jesus says, let's just suppose that the world could offer you everything. Everything. Make that list. When you're lying down at sleep and you're saying, oh, if I just didn't have this and I could have that, let's say you could gain it all, Jesus says. It'd be the worst deal that you've ever made because it, you will forfeit your soul in the end. 
And guess what? Even if you could have gained all the riches, all the fame of the world, it will be of no currency in the age to come. Your money won't work. Your fame, your accolades, your status. You will be like the beasts that perish. You won't be able to regain and purchase your soul. So when the tempter comes and says, I've got it all, even if he has it all, he has that better spouse, he could have better children, he could have that, that better way of life. Is it worth your soul? Because that's what it'll cost you. And Jesus says, the only way to preserve your soul is to follow the way of Christ. And Jesus ends, though, with glory. And this way leads to glory, as we're going to see. Having put our life within an internal perspective, that's what he's doing. It's how you fight temptation in the moment you, you keep the promises of God before you and you keep the warnings of God before you. And you fight like your life depends on it. That's what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> fight. Arm yourself. You got to keep perspective. Jesus, having done that, turns to the glory which he will have when he returns. And he says this in verse 27. For the Son of Man, now just think about this. The Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? The Son of Man who's going to Jerusalem and is going to suffer and die. The same Son of Man is going to, verse 27, come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus turns our sight to the future. And what we need to understand is, yes, what we see of now looks weakness, powerlessness. Jesus doesn't seem to be on the throne, though he is. He says, it'll all be made evident when I come with my myriad upon myriad of angels. I'm going to come in the glory of my Father. You're going to see me in my exaltation. One of the temptations we face during trials is that we want God to show us, and sometimes others, that we truly are his children, right? I want you to show that I'm, I'm following the way. Give me some fruit so I can have some, some, some confidence here. Or when others think that I'm, I'm crazy or, or it becomes difficult, if you could just show everybody by, by exalting me, that would be great, right? That temptation comes, and what Jesus is telling us is that glory comes after the cross. We have to keep things in perspective. Glory comes after the cross, and here's what we know. Glory is coming. Brothers and sisters, glory is coming. And when Jesus comes, guess what? He's going to repay everyone according to what they have done. Now, for some of us, that may be a scary prospect. Certainly, there is an element of judgment here because everyone who is wronged, cheated, abandoned, or, or, or 
or caused harm to one of Jesus' disciples, he is going to repay. He is going to make every wrong right. And so, yes, there is a, a reckoning that is going to come on that day. But for us who have denied ourselves, who've endured the sufferings, who have borne the cross and followed in this footstep, this is going to be a day of rejoicing. This is going to be a day of celebration like no other. It is the day in which we have all been longing for it. It's going to be a day of vindication. You think back at the Beatitudes, what is, what is one of those? Blessed are you who are persecuted. Blessed are you, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers. What? They will be called sons of God. The ones who have followed the way of Christ, they will be recognized. They will inherit. It's going to be a day of glory, a day in which Christ will appear. And it is this day in which we must set our minds upon and some of you might say, I, I can't wait. <laughs> I, I, am, I am worn out. I don't have another leg in me. I have one other place I want to take you. Because I want you to see that actually the rest of the scripture understands suffering in light of the cross. And I want you to see that as we actually listen to the rest of scripture, when it talks about how we are to deal with our suffering and endure it always comes back to this theme of, of the cross in our life. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is trying to remind the Corinthians of this. They have a they have a tendency to think very highly of themselves and to think that, that God's blessing means glory and riches at all times and no suffering and no burdens. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul brings himself and the other apostles to mind and as an example. And I, I want us to learn and see what, what is he tapping into here. Paul says, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So he's given a, a particular moment. When we were in Asia, we experienced a great trial. Look at what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We wanted to just die. Maybe some of you are there. The burden that you have right now, I would just rather die. That's where Paul's at. He says in verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Maybe you feel like God has just sentenced you to death. But look at the turn that Paul makes here. Why do we experience afflictions, trials, bear the crosses? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see it? Do you see what he did there? Deny yourself. This was so that you would deny yourself and rely on God. And you would trust the promises of resurrection. But I want you to see verse 10. 
Paul's alive to tell the story. He, that's God, delivered us from such a deadly peril. Do you see that? Guess what? We came to the end of ourselves. He broke us so that we would not rely on ourselves. And guess what? He delivered us. I'm here to tell you about it. Sometimes when I have people come in for counseling, and I do this often, and I'm not sure if they appreciate it, but I hope that we reflect on it later. I say, guess what? I hear you, and I do not want to downplay your sufferings, but you're still here. You've said this for how many years? That you could not go any longer, but you are still here, aren't you? I had one family. Unsurmountable pressures on their life. I remember telling them this, and, and they came back on the other side years later. They don't come to this church anymore, but the husband took me lunch. He says, you, you always reminded us we're still here. And now we can see God's faithfulness. Now we can see it. Doesn't mean that we're out of the woods, but oh, we can see it. That's what Paul's saying. He delivered us, but notice, and he will deliver us. Every trial is you dying and rising again and aiming to that ultimate resurrection to come. Paul is thinking of his suffering, and he's trying to help us think through it through the lens of the cross. All right. So when we think about the cross, how do we get through this? I have three practical things I want you to see. I've got them up on the screen. This is practically what we see here. When we are enduring crosses, first of all, here's the, there's the prayers that we should be asking or praying. Number one, show me, Lord, where I have not trusted your gospel, where I haven't looked to the cross. Show me where I've not trusted your gospel. Two, show me where hidden sin resides in my heart. Because he's putting it to death in you. And three, show me where I have not set my hope in glory. Show me. Over the past couple of years, I've, I've been finding great comfort and and benefit from reading the prayers of old saints who've gone before us. In particular, uh, there's a little book of prayers called The Valley of Vision. You can get it in the library. I encourage you to maybe check it out, see it, and then buy your own copy. But it's prayers from the Puritans. 18th century, early 19th century. And these prayers, really, I, I find, while wow, there was a depth of understanding the cross in a way that Frankly, I don't know, and I want to know. I want to close our time reading a portion of a prayer entitled, The Calling of the Christian. What has God called us to? And, and this prayer ends this way. I've got it up on the screen. Grant that I may be salted with suffering, with every exactment tempered to my soul, every rod excellently fitted to my back, to chastise, humble, and break me. Let me not overlook the hand that hold the rod, as you did not let me forget the rod that fell on Christ and drew me to him. That's the cross-centered life, my friends. Let me go to, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and after we pray, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Oh God, of all that is good, 
We bless you for the means of grace that you supply. Teach us as we take the Lord's Supper to see in them your loving purposes and the joy and strength of our souls. You have prepared for us a feast. And though we are unworthy to sit down as guests, we wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. When we hear his tender invitation and we see his wondrous grace, we cannot hesitate, but we must come to you in love. By your spirit, we ask you enliven our faith to rightly discern and to spiritually apprehend the Savior. And so while we gaze upon the symbols of our Savior's death, may we ponder why he died and hear him say to us, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself as an offering to atone for your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh God, may we rightly grasp the breadth and length of your design. May we draw near, obey, May we extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink. Testify before all that we do for ourselves gladly in faith. Revere and love and receive our Lord, who is our life, strength, nourishment, joy, and delight. In the supper, Father, we remember your eternal love, your boundless grace, infinite compassion, Jesus, your agony, cross, redemption, and we receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements will nourish our body, so may your indwelling spirit invigorate our souls until that day when we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.